You are listening to the Small Liquor Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world, free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them. That sounds interesting. Stay tuned for this episode of the Smalley Grounding Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode of the Small Gear Hunting Podcast. I am extremely excited. Um, this is a day that I've been waiting for. Um, I get a chance to kind of sit down and, and nab the ear, and uh, you guys get to listen along to a conversation with good friend Jake Ellinger today on the podcast. Uh, we're not going to have a big, long intro. We're just going to get this thing firing, and uh, I'm going to have Jake go ahead and introduce himself. For those of you out there that don't know who Jake is, Um, Many people, if you've delved into the habitat world long enough or you live in the Midwest area around the Great Lakes, he's a name that you do recognize, but maybe you just don't know the backstory or what brought him to where he is now. So, Jake, if you want to just kind of give us a a quick little introduction, one to five minutes of just kind of who you are, where you're from, and what got you to where you're at now. Well, thank you, Ty. Uh, Sure. So, yeah, I'm Jake Yellinger. I own a habitat consulting business called Habitat Solutions 360. Um, I was born and raised here in southern Michigan in a region that at one time had very few deer. Uh, when I was young and a teenager, we were more into small game. There weren't that many deer in this part of the state due to the over uh, timbering and farming practices. And the deer had pretty much been taken out of this area. But slowly they moved back in and got a huntable population in the late 60s and early 70s. And that was just as I was a teenager. So I started uh, I gave up all the small game hunting once I saw my first whitetail with antlers. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, mom and dad, you guys can go chase pheasants and rabbits, but I'm going to try and go after these deer. And I was the only bow hunter in the family and, and to cut my teeth, you know, uh, pretty interesting, but, you know, had my successes. And as I got married and, uh, you know, got into my life and still just loved chasing deer and learning what I could, uh, I had an opportunity to buy it's actually 67 and three quarters acres here in uh, southeast Lenawee County, or no, I'm sorry, northwest Lenawee County. And that was in 1981, and it was a property I had killed my first uh, deer with, with a flintlock muzzleloader, true flintlock, you know, cap and ball, or not cap and ball, but I mean patch ball and the flintlock and the powder in the pan. But anyways, bought this farm that I grew up just a little ways away from. And, uh, you know, kind of took off on my own endeavors back in those days on how to improve the habitat and learned a lot about hunting. And as the years went by, I just tried a lot of different things. A lot of it was trial and error. Um, You know, there was no Internet. There was no there was no Facebook forums. There was no place to get this information other than one or two magazines. And uh, Deer and Deer Hunting was one of the few magazines that had some habitat articles i don't know if, if you're familiar with the how many years deer and deer hunting magazine has been around and it's, it's been around a long time but but anyways i i read some pretty cool articles about different things that people were doing in states you know southern states texas uh, what deer management what quality deer management meant nobody even knew that term in the 80s around here you know uh but over the years i had my successes and uh, really started making changes 
through, you know, timber stand improvement and lots of different things. And uh, after about uh, 35 plus years in the engineering profession, I, I gave that profession up to start this business and chase my dream back actually 21 years ago in February of 2000. So, which leads me to where I'm at today. And I've visited a pile of farms, probably somewhere between 12 and 1400 farms, if I was to add them all up in a lot of different states, but primarily focus in Michigan, Northern Indiana, Northern Ohio, a little bit of uh, Illinois and Missouri work because they have very common Midwest ground, which is real typical to what we have here in in uh, you know these three states that yep. border. Yep. But uh, yeah, you know, so it's just I do uh, you know some long, some very detailed long range plans for hunters. I'm, I'm as I said, I'm a I'm a, a draftsman from way back in the days that turned into an engineer in the automotive industry, and I keep those skills uh, to still lay out all my uh, architectural designs to help people with properties from basically. 35 to, you know, I've done some really large properties too, but my, my common property is in that 35 to 80 acre size. So it helped a lot of people over the years and it uh, sure is neat seeing people uh, follow the plan and send me the picture a few years later with the best deer they've ever killed. That's perfect. Um, I didn't, so 21 years ago was when you actually delved into this, uh, how, how many years, you said in the 81, you bought your property? Did you kind of start right out of the gate trying I to did. figure out what you wanted to try to do, just trial and error? You know, I will tell you, we bought the property in December of 81. And my wife and I were driving down the road here, and, and we knew all about this property. I knew the guy that used to own it and saw a for sale sign, and I thought, well, gosh, we'll just call on it, you know. And it had been for sale a month or so, but anyways, we called on it, and Oh, uh, you know, you know, when you're young and, and you know, dream. And so we, we were young and dreamers and somehow we put the money together and made an offer and they took it. And uh, th- so that was in December. So the following spring, we took off planting spruce trees and things like that along the, you know, there was, it was like 27 acres of tillable right along the road. Okay. And all the rest of it was woods and swamp. So we took right off planting conifers and things like that. Uh, didn't know that it was the right thing to do, but did do it. You know, now, geez, they're 35, 40 foot tall. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to realize this is 1981. This is, you know, 2021. So that was a few years ago. But, uh, you know, some of them died. Some of them survived. But, you know, that's what we did right off the gate. And, uh, you know, pulled some of the tillable uh out and just let it go into succession, mm-hmm. you know, during that same time frame. but kept a lot, you know, probably kept 20 of it in tillable. And uh, over the years, just uh, kept trying to, uh, you know, create more thickness. And it didn't take me very long when, uh, after I bought the property, it's not real hilly, but it's got, I'm going to say gently rolling ground here. That's mm-hmm. probably 30 to 35 feet in top to bottom of these rolls. So when you have open tillable ground and you park your your truck or car down at the bottom of the of the hill, and then you try to walk back into the woods, it didn't take long uh, for me to figure out that the deer could see me coming. Okay, <laughs> you were making some smart deer. I was making some smart deer in a real short amount of time, and uh, so I was, you know, 
you know, in my off season during the winter, you know, drawing hand drawn maps because this is way before Google. You couldn't even go get a satellite photo. Mm -hmm. And I was just going from what I knew about the property and drawing maps and how I could plant trees. And if I had two lines of trees here, you know, could I get to this section? And and that was the stuff I started out doing very early when I first bought the property. And by about 1995, 96, that's when I was really getting good at it. And I had, I had experimented with a few small food plots, probably about 93 to 96 in that time frame. When I say small food plots, you know, eighth of an acre, quarter of an acre, you know, whatever a guy could do with a hand rototiller. Okay. Right. I remember those days. Oh, <laughs> we still have a walk behind. We still use it in a couple spots. Oh, man. You know, the things I did. But, uh, but I started having some luck, you know, and yeah. during that. That time period in 1986, so I'd owned the property for five years. I killed a very big whitetail on this property, and and just I mean, I was in the right place. I knew about the swamp crossings. I've got some cool wetlands here, and he didn't score that great. He's just under 120, but at the time he was the heaviest whitetail anybody around here had seen. And the third day after I had it hanging, my friends convinced me. They said, you've got to take it to the local buck pole and see what that thing weighs. Mm -hmm. And so three days after I killed it, it was 237 field dress. Wow. So who knows what that weighed 20 minutes after I killed him, okay? <laughs> he probably was, you know, 245, 250. I mentioned, you know, he lost a lot of, you know, moisture and stuff like that hanging three days, probably 10 or 15 pounds anyways. But yeah, he just had a huge neck and just was, you know, my first mature buck. And uh, and then in the mid '90s, I killed a couple real good ones that probably were in that oh low 30s to mid mid 135 class that really cut my teeth. You know, uh, yep. okay, I killed some small bucks for years. That's what everybody killed. But I'm going to start changing who I am. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I I went about you know just. How can I make this property better? You know, how can I make it better? How can I, you know, here, here's where they used to bed. It's not, they're not bedding, you know, uh, dealt with some timber stand uh, situations, uh, the good and the bad of timber stand improvement, you know, selective cut of hardwoods and uh, found out in a short amount of time that really didn't get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So uh, that's kind of my story to, um, you know, and then since, you know, over the years, of course, I've, I've tried all kinds of different things, you know, willow plantings, conifer plantings, different hardwood plantings, different food sources. Mm -hmm. I planted, I planted so many apple trees and pear trees that the deer killed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I plan on leaving my fences up the rest and of I, my life. You know, I can tell you that uh, it didn't take me long to figure out about this fencing them. And you and you get your share of snow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And every once in a while, you know, eight or ten years would go by. And then we'd get that one year where there'd be a 30 to 40 inch snowpack with about two inches of a hard crust, which means it, it got in the 40s two or three days. The sun comes out and then it gets real cold again and the deer can walk on top of that yep. snow. And now they can get over the top of that fence. Your five foot fence is now two and a half. Yeah, exactly, Ty. <laughs> And, you know, you go back here in the spring, and it's like, man, 90% of these apples are gone. You know, the limbs are broke off of them, and, you know, they're just browsed to, you know, to death. And it was like, all right, I got to come up with a different plan, you know. And uh, so, you know, I started learning to put more and more uh, you know, fence around them and, far, you know, farther away and that sort of thing, you know, to where now I'm, 
I'm surrounding the fence 20 feet around the tree instead of really close up to them. But uh, you know, the truth is I have nice big apple trees here on the, on the farm. Sure, uh, several of them died, but I got some really good ones here that you know are geez, eight to 10 inch caliper and they're 25 feet tall and they drop bushels of apples when we have a good year. Yeah. You know, last, last spring, we had a really late freeze here. I didn't get enough apples out of uh, the, the 10 or 12 trees I've got on the farm here to probably fill a five gallon bucket out of all the trees. Yeah, I had. But I that had, happens on yep, Cape. I inherited two native apple trees on mine that I uncovered through the brush hogging. And one of them usually puts on just so many it br- breaks the branches. This last year, I probably couldn't even have filled up a, you know, a cut top yeah. milk jug. It just. But you, you had a very nothing. similar spring. You had to have cold spring and, and you know, the blossoms just don't do their thing. And, yep. and hey, that happens every once in a while. So, uh, well, good deal. Let's. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna start us off kind of with a little bit of a hypothetical uh, situation. You know, a client. Client emails Jake once. Hey, they just bought 22 acres, uh, property, and and they're looking for you to come out and do their layout. And where I'm heading with this is, what are some of the, you know, and it's it's really hard. I know to list a couple, but maybe just the first couple bullet points that pop into your head. What are some of the most critical items or things that you feel anybody listening needs to know or consider? before they start tackling that future? You know, you've cut your teeth all these years. What were some of the things that you've learned that they need to consider before they start firing up you a know, chainsaw? You um, know, a number of them come to mind, but I, I can tell you, Ty. Uh, number one, every landowner needs to really think about what are their goals? You know, what's their end game? You know, do they just want to own a piece of property to have some, have some recreation and fun with the wife and kids and, and see some deer or maybe kill a few deer including the kids get opportunities to take antlers deer or are they the kind of person that says man i you know i'd really like to be able to eventually have this property give me opportunities on mature bucks okay i, I you know i'm a i'm a i'm a deer nut and i would really like to to be able to kill some mature bucks on my own 22 acres or 30 acres whatever it is mm-hmm. so the first thing you got to do is you know what do you want to do and then you got to have a plan and part of that plan is, and I don't think a lot of people talk about this, but I, I've been on a lot of properties where a big mistake was made from the day one they bought the property. And that was they went ahead and used the farmer's gate as their entry point because it's been there for the last 30 years and there's a culvert there. Mm-hmm. And this is where they pull in and this is where they park their car, or their truck. And here's where they enter the property. Now, this might be on a high spot that drops down. Uh, for you know, 20 to 40 feet over 10 acres of tillable right to the lowest spot of the property that surrounds a ridge that goes around a wetland that every deer that lives in that woods walks out, steps into that tillable field and sees that vehicle and sees you. So what I mean by that is really think about your entry and exit points. You know, are there other options? Sometimes you don't have an option. You're just stuck with what's there. But I can tell you, I had to completely change things on this property when I first bought it. And and boy, I'm glad I did, you know, because when I when I first had it, there was there were two entry points that the uh, the farmer brought his equipment in and out of the fields. And I used the one because it was wide and, and all the trees were cut away and I could just pull my truck right in here. And that goes back to the original when we first started talking. And man, as soon as I got out of my truck, the deer 200 yards away were were moving out of the woods because they saw me coming, you know. So an entry and exit points are something to think about. And then another one is 
what what do they know about the neighborhood influences? And that can be everything from, oh, maybe neighbors that have some tree stands on the property line, or maybe some neighbors that are, uh, let's say that's on the negative side. Let's say on the other side, geez, there's, there's a neighbor who's really a good neighbor and he's already, you know, you've ran into him and introduced yourself to him and he's told you that he practices QDM, he's got some food plots and welcome to the neighborhood. Well, that's a good thing to have, you know. And then, you know, I, I guess the worst thing you can have is the is the three neighbors that own five acres evenly divided on your east fence row. And they've all got their three friends that want to shoot a buck. <laughs> that was very specific. I feel there might be a real life situation there. <laughs> um, I'm definitely I've seen that, okay. And you know, and and so uh, knowing those kinds of things going in, that will help you in your plan. You know, where you're going to put screening, where are you not going to locate your food, that type of thing. And then I think another thing is uh, that needs to be looked into. This will be the last item. And that would be soil quality. You know, if the more you know about that soil is really going to help you, will you be able to grow the screen? Will you be able to grow the trees? Will you be able to grow that food plot? Um, you know, will you be able to to introduce uh, warm season grasses or other types of, of uh, you know, monocultures throughout the property that fits in the plan that you're coming up with. So those, those are, you know, I'm gonna say most people have two of those, but you know, if a guy had all four of those going into the negative on his side, I might just tell him to put that property up for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I say, well, you're gonna have a, you know, you wanna talk about a challenge, you know? And, and I actually did run into a client once, and at the end of the day, he asked me what I thought, and I, I could just go into the horror stories, and, and I won't because yeah. it'll take too much time, but I, I convinced him to sell the property because of his neighbors and the poor quality of the soil, plus there was two gas wells on his small property, and the gas trucks were on that property every day. So the disruption he had between his neighbors and the poor soil and the, and the gas company trucks Man, he wasn't going to see many deer. Okay, he was never going to see many, and he wasn't going to hold any. And it was like I say, it was a you know 15 acre property, and it was uh, yeah, it just wasn't conducive for all that uh, interruption that was going on. Yeah, that would be a frustrating thing to walk into, but I'm sure he's uh, thankful now for that advice. He really is because he ended up buying a really nice 40 acres. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, does that so, answer your question? Yes, no. yeah. So, I mean, some of the things that, and I always tell people to look at the macro, which yours is look at the neighborhood, know what's around, yeah. all the yep. influences that are above it. I always, everybody looks at a property in the micro sense, just at the property specifically, when there are a lot of factors that you need to look at before you even decide what you're going to do um, outside of the property lines. Absolutely. You know, neighborhood can have, can be, uh, can be awesome. It can be the greatest thing you have going for you, or it could be the worst thing you have going for you. And it can change. That's, oh, yeah. that's the one frustrating thing about land ownership. You only can control what's on your land, not what's elsewhere. That, it's true. You know, yep. absolutely. Yep. Yep. What was a really good thing for 15 years now could be a really bad thing. You know, all it takes is one property sale. Yep. Yeah. So uh, moving on now, let's say you're actually going to, you know, you've been to properties over all these years, um, you know, 21 years now, and you've seen a lot more than, than myself or anybody listening to this probably. 
Um, and I kind of tipped you off to this question before the podcast, and I know you're going to kind of go in two different directions, which I look forward to. What if you could tell us all, if, if somebody handed you a pen and a paper and said, what are some of the most common mistakes? Now, we kind of talked about a few before, um, but if you could expound a little bit, what are some of the most the most common mistakes that hunters make that are greatly impacting them in a negative way in meeting success? Yeah, I'd be happy to go into this. And, and as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, I think I'm going to break this into two sections. Uh, what are the mistakes they make habitat-wise? What are the mistakes they make hunting-wise? So first I'll dive into habitat. And that is, uh, I think there's not enough emphasis in early successional growth. A lot of landowners really don't realize how important young growth constantly coming up on this property that they own is to holding uh, white-tailed deer of all age classes and both sexes. And, you know, uh, a a huge emphasis on food and food plots, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, early successional growth and and the key that, you know, from cover to stem density uh, to, to winter browse, um, there just doesn't seem ever to be a, enough people to, real, uh, to really understand the details of it. I mean, if you ever saw my place, you'd think a bomb went off, okay? <laughs> because when I finally realized how many trees I needed to cut, I mean, I got, I got to it, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it took a few years. And, and, and what I'll say is a lot of people understand it, and it's a kind of a buzzword. A lot of people in the habitat industry talk about early successional growth, and there's everything from, you know, TSI, timber stand improvement, or, you know, a selective cut or clear cut, depending on the, the tree species and, and what you've got growing in your region. But I've been brought in on enough properties and say, oh, yeah, you know, we had a select cut here done, you know, three years ago. And after I've been there 20 minutes walking around, I'm trying to figure out where the trees there were that got cut. <laughs> And you realize, oh, yeah, on this 40 acres, we had 65 trees cut. Well, you know, <laughs> um, and, and I understand um, at the time, you know, it's hard to let go. You know, you buy this piece of property and there's these beautiful oaks and maples and, or, you know, beech or, or whatever the species are. And, uh, you know, you just hate to see those cut and leave because they've been there a long time. But uh, it takes a lot of sunlight hitting the ground to create you know, young oaks, young maples, young hickories, young ash trees that deer browse on that ultimately create stem density and cover and bedding areas that's gonna that's then gonna create rutting and predictability. So a lot of people kind of miss on that. So that's my job to educate them on that one. And uh, I would say they also uh, rely pretty heavily on food plots from a, from a habitat. And and, and again, food plots are great. And I think really thinking about the location of that food plot, you know, can I get to, to this great hunting stand in the cover without walking along the edge or through this food plot? Because some guys go out there and they, you know, they got equipment and they go, man, this is nice right here. It's flat. It's good. soil. we're going to make a food plot right here. You know, and, and now five years later in the managing their ground, they realize every time they pull in, they go into the woods, come out of the woods, they're bouncing deer. They don't have, you know, they don't have the screening. So again, just, just think about that food plot location. And again, that all ties into soils. And sometimes you have no choice because the best soil, or, you know, uh, means, hey, you're going to, you've got two different places to choose from. And it's these, these places and it's not really where you'd like to hide them. And then I would say 
Another thing in habitat is the lack of serious detail in planning, screening, and access. You know, it's one thing to talk about access and screening, but it's another to make it to where you can get in and get out of places that you want to hunt without deer knowing you're there. Yep. And if you want to educate deer and make deer hunt you, just let them know that you're hunting them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, and, and again, this happens, this, this goes to a, uh, this applies to the small landowner that, you know, he wants to work on his habitat. He wants to kill deer. So he is there several times during the season. And every time he's there, if he doesn't have good screening, then he's educating his deer. Okay, yep. they're, they're learning about him. So it's not near as easy to get up close to those deer in December as it was that first week, October. So from the habitat side, those are, you know, some three of the serious mistakes I see made. Now on the hunting side, I'm going to say um, over hunting good locations. So they've got two or three ideal spots that are good places, but they hunt them too much. And then right along with that is they're hunting them under less than ideal conditions. And that is the wind's not quite right. Conditions aren't right. Oh, it's a beautiful October 18th afternoon. The wind's out of the southwest. But, you know, it's sure there'll be deer moving. But, you know, that mature deer that you're getting on camera, he's probably not going to move around all that much because the conditions just aren't the kind of conditions that get him up on his feet. And then poor scent control. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna follow that one hard because I just don't think people realize what poor scent control does to a property that they own that they're hunting several times during the fall as far as long-term effects. And that's everything from their body scent to the bottoms of their boots. And I think the biggest, the biggest violation most small landowners and medium-sized landowners have that hire me to put a plan together is they do not take care of the bottoms of those boots like they should. You know, and they, they walk in, they go to their stand, they have a pretty decent hunt. They walk back out, they're real careful. They don't, they don't touch a whole lot of vegetation, but the bottoms of their boots, well, you know, I was gonna wash them off and, and, and soak them down with baking soda this year, but hey, I, I took care of them pretty good last fall, so they're gonna be all right, okay? They got them in a tote, they think everything's good. Well, they're back home, they're sleeping, it's 2 a.m. And that really nice buck and those big mature does that they've got on camera, they're now walking around that property at night with their nose to the ground, figuring out who walked in and who went and walked up to this ladder stand that there hasn't been a human smell there in three months. And now they've tracked you there and they track you back. And it, it's the, it's this process that takes place. So, you know, so now he hunts it, uh, you know, two weeks later or a week later, he's in there hunting it again, he, she. Other two weeks, they're in there hunting it two more times. Now these deer are very aware of you being there and they're starting to avoid that area during daylight. So, those, you know, when it comes to the habitat mistakes and hunting mistakes, those are the ones I see done most often. I love it. I, I love the the visual of, a, of, of the deer coming up to our trails after we leave. You know, I've always, there's, there's a theory that I hold to and it's that whenever we enter the property, we leave a story behind. Boy, you got that Every right. single time. Whether that story is very intrusive and very long to the deer, or it's just a quick sentence that they're not quite sure what happened, we leave something. Oh, Air we scent, do. ground scent, 
whatever it might be. And I love how you went into that. And I have a feeling we're going to touch on that when we get into scent later on in the discussion. But yeah. I, I wanted to circle back to the three, you know, the three main bullet points of the habitat was early succession, over-dependence on food plots, and then kind of access and screening not yeah. being thought about. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, think, oh, yeah, that's important. But right now I got, uh, you know, I got to build bedding areas and have a food plot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just great. But if you haven't got a way in and out of there without deer seeing you, <laughs> good luck right what i was going to say where i was heading with that was a hierarchy is it tough to sometimes get your clients or for those of you listening would maybe i'm reading between the lines a little too much here and correct me if i'm wrong but i would almost say you probably tell people you need to start with access and screening and getting sunlight down before we really need to delve into the plots oh yeah yeah you know uh in fact i just finished up a plan today that i sent to a, a client and I really went over uh, in detail. I do a little video that kind of highlights the areas to focus, mm-hmm. and his and his visual screening. He's he's got you know he's got some rolling topography, and if you're going to get down into this area and hunt during the during the rut, you need to cover these areas. You know you've got to so so a combination of you know miscanthus grass, switchgrass, and then some and doing some cutting along the edge of the woods to create early succession, which takes time, and also lay some trees horizontal, which helps instantly. Yep. Uh, our, you know, I put those in, in year one on his priority list. It's like, you need to do that first. You, you can focus on this food and pinch points later. You know. So. I mean, it really, I, I always tell everybody that comes to me, you know, food plots kind of are a year two, year three type thing. Unless you get to them, let's focus on all this other stuff because, okay, yeah, you have good food, but if you don't have good everything else, how are you going to expect the deer to live on your property? I can tell you just uh, through a guy that made a lot of mistakes, and I was just a, a young Michigan, uh, you know, at one time a teenager, then a young man, and, you know, hunting hunting was stick and string because that was my love, and the things, <laughs> the mistakes I made, the deer taught me, and so, you know, by the time I got into my 30s, I was figuring out access and how important this wind was, and I was really starting to dive into scent control like nobody else I knew I was getting into scent control and I had a long way to go as far as getting my habitat to where it's at today but I had figured out access and you know and sometimes we can use uh, the topography to our access you know to our advantage you know but other times not so much so it all depends on on where it's at and what region you're in. Yep. And I, I loved the overhunting good locations. I, I mean, I think we all get roped into that. I have to make some hard and fast rules. There are certain areas I just don't go to. And I still have a stand on my property I've owned since 2016. It's probably my favorite stand. I have yet to hunt it. <laughs> and it's your favorite stand. And it is and my favorite stand. I know if I make it to that stand undetected, I will kill. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I Yeah. And I'll kill a good one. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, it sounds like you're learning to discipline yourself really well. And that is, uh, you know, that is something I talk an awful lot about with my clients at the end of the day. So, you know, I've, yep. I've, I print out the Google Sheets and I make notes all over the, their drawing or their property. And at the end of the day, I bring a bunch of information that I hand out in a USB drive that I've got a whole lot of information packed onto it. But I print out some sheets about how important it is to understand that we have to learn to hunt less, but our hunts are going to be a lot more productive and that we are our biggest Achilles heel. <laughs> you know, I mean, truly, you know, you, uh, there's certain, I mean, you know, anybody could, you know, like say a blind squirrel can find a nut, right? 
True. But when it comes to consistency, and and you know, I've I've had a little consistency in my life when it comes to, to targeting on on mature bucks in a in an area where there's still plenty of deer hunters. Um, you know, you've got to wait until it's right. And that's everything from wind and high pressure. And we could get into all kinds of things that I follow when it comes to hunting. But I'm, I've literally got three things that have to be checked off. And if those, if I can't check those three things, I'm not going hunting. Yep. And and the fourth one is, is I, I call it, that's the chocolate syrup on the ice cream. I always like that fourth one. But those three, it's just not happening. Okay. <laughs> and yep. those of you out there listening that have wives, they'll appreciate you more and let you hunt more if That's you learn right. to take days you know, off. You know, you you stay home and you help them do the honeydew list and you and you get the the storm door hung and you help her with some housework. Well, yeah, she's not giving you a whole lot of trouble when Thursday night turns out to be a good night to go hunting. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So uh and speaking of consistency, for those who don't follow Jake, you, you right now, Jake, we'll, we'll end the episode, too, with you reminding everybody, where can they check you out? I mean, you have an awesome YouTube channel. Um, yep, uh, Habitat Solutions 360 LLC on YouTube, and then uh, HabitatSolutions360.com on the web. That's my website. And I've also got a uh, Facebook page, Habitat Solutions uh, 360 Facebook page. Perfect. I recommend Jake does an awesome job of, of breaking down and kind of telling the story of his buck harvest. And the two from last year are, are definitely worth a, worth checking out. Yeah, those were some fun hunts. And, and I'm, uh, yeah, you know, and, and here, here we are, you know, it's, uh, it's antler drop season and we've got, we've still got too much snow in the woods, but my food plots are opening up and I'm just aching to get out and do a little bit of looking but who knows if i can find any sheds this year i've got one in particular i'm really looking for but time will tell you know they they do a lot of moving this time of the year you know when the when the neighbors have a lot of cover crop on hundreds of acres just because they've been in my food plots for months on end is and when you know when the neighbors when the neighbor's field opens up because it's big and it's 100 acres and it's got green uh you know wheat and rye then hey that's where they end up okay that's where those deer go and I can't change that, but, uh, Hey, but that's yeah. a lesson for everybody listening. You know, let the, let the other people find the sheds. Yeah. Let the other guys but let, them, let's get know. the deer when the antlers are attached. You know, is there's, it's as much as I like finding sheds, I really like getting my hands on a, you know, 160 class animal after I've shot him and everything worked to plan. It's really cool. <laughs> yep. From soil that you can reach down and touch and say, that's mine. Yep. Yeah, sure have. Well, one thing that I remember, I don't remember if it was this last year or the year prior, and uh, maybe you can jog my memory, but you spoke to kind of how you go about harvesting does. Inevitably, inevitably, that is something that when people reach out to me, they always ask, you know, Tyre, do you shoot your does early? Do you shoot your does late? Where do you shoot them? How do you go about shooting? Do you even shoot does? Um, What is your, how do you tackle that approach? Because I really liked a couple of the things that you do. You know, number one. Um, as, a, as a good land manager and as landowners and land stewards, um, we should be very intimately familiar with how many deer are utilizing our property. And that's going to have a lot to do with, you know, early successional growth and, da- you know, damage and success. Um, if I need to shoot does, I always focus on mature does because it's the mature does that produce the maximum amount of mouths to feed and are very good at bringing those fawns into recruitment age, which means, they're going to be entered into the herd as adults, you know, in November. You know, they, they are very good at surviving. So I focus on mature does. And anybody who's tried to kill mature does with archery equipment in Michigan is going to find out 
that's kind of like trying to shoot a five-year-old buck sometimes. <laughs> you know, they aren't the first one out, okay? <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what I do. Um, I try to kill them early season, weather conditions being right, meaning cool. I can, I can kill a doe, hang it overnight, maybe hang it two nights, get it to a processor. If the weather's right, I like to kill them early season. It is a really good time of the year to be able to differentiate the button bucks from the does as far as body size because mm-hmm. they haven't had a chance to get big and healthy and weigh 100 pounds a piece like they do in December up here. And you probably get button bucks that weigh a, right around 100 pounds, right? Come, oh, yeah, they look like a two-year-old doe by oh, the yeah. end of the season. They look like a two-year-old doe when they walk out. So that's real helpful. Um, I try, I would say for the last, right under about 20 years now, I've tried to have one or two locations that I can shoot does. That number one, uh, it's I'm I'm not entering the property very deep, and I'm and I'm shooting does where even if I make a great shot and they run 60 yards because you double lung them, they don't end up where the bucks are bedded. Mm-hmm. And one of the coolest things I've done, and it spent me about I I probably put a good seven, well, 20 years tree planting but seven to ten years and getting the food plot but i have a, a doe killing place right here not 60 yards away from where i'm sitting right now right here just outside of my garage and and it, it is the sweetest setup okay it's just it's so cool but i mean i can kill does away from where all the bucks are it doesn't mean i don't get some bucks and i've got a tiny little food plot you know probably something of like a a quarter to a third of an acre it's kind of a spoon shape it's got a lot of conifers around a lot of a lot of hinge cutting around it and i walk right in from the house so i don't even have to worry about scent control because man they smell humans all around here they they constantly deal with with humans and i've got a banks blind which is an enclosed blind and i just slip into that in an evening and i you know some evenings uh, I just see the young deer, but when those big does come out, I shoot the big does there. I, I try to I try to shoot them early season. Doesn't mean that I don't shoot some does in late season because sometimes I go, you know, I think I need to kill a few more. I just can't believe how many does are here right now. Sure. And then I had I had some family members this year that wanted to come out and hunt and were busy with jobs and things like that. And then it gets, you know, it gets starts getting cold it's the 20th of december and they're like hey jake is there any way you can go kill that doe for me i'm not going to be able to make it you know i got an older brother he's like he'd like to, he'd like to come kill a doe but he's like is there any way you can just go kill me one and so now i'm going out in december and killing one you know uh, but yeah i i definitely do and this year um i can't say i put the smack down but i had a neighbor that i was communicating with and between the two of us we killed six does Nice. And you still have a really good, healthy population. Oh, yeah. We had, we had very high, you know, and, and every one of these does was three and a half and older. Yep. I killed two. I know for sure were four and a half, and I killed one around the 20th of December. And by looking at her lower jaw, I'd say she was six and a half. She was big. She was 146, 100 field dressed. So just a, you know, just a big old gal. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure she had twins in her, but I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. But it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I, I've got plenty of, of, of deer. Uh, you know, uh, there's plenty of fawns that hit the ground. So yep. I'm doing my habitat a favor by uh, taking some of those out. Yep. So, now, that small plot, is that the one that's predominantly clover and chicory? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually 60% chicory and 40% clover. And it is a real deer draw in the fall, you know. And they, I mean, it's, it's a place that evenings, I mean, there's always anywheres from 
four to maybe 10 or 12 deer that moved through there in that last two hours of daylight. I run a camera there. I just go, oh, man, there's a lot of activity, I guess. I guess this, you know, so that could be one of those nights when the conditions aren't all that great. I was talking about the three checks, you know, mm-hmm. well, I might just have a good west wind, which means, okay, you know, uh, the food plot's on the west side of the bank's blind, and I'm surrounded by, geez, 25 to 45 foot uh, Norway spruce, so I can just walk right in, climb up that ladder, get in there. And then because of that, they're bedded, you know, most of the time these deer are bedded within 100 yards, sometimes even less. And they just pop out of the hinge cuts and the early succession I've got, and they come in there and they feed. And eventually they move off to the bigger plots that I have. But these are the, these are the deer that are up close to the house. So they're the problem ones that are eating the wife's expensive trees anyways. <laughs> Gotta love that. Yeah, so so that's my philosophy on on killing does. Okay, you know, but again, if you if you don't have a lot of does, then maybe you don't need to kill any. Yep. I I discovered personally just this year where all my does were. I'd always have some, and then they always seem to be gone. Well, I have a neighbor, two guys, kind of like that description you said. They hunt four and a half acres, and pretty much anything that walks by them gets taken out. So I don't have to do much doe harvesting on my place. You know, I, I can tell you, I had an experience with that about. Back around 2012 through about 2015, there was a couple of neighbor boys, and they're two properties away, but I'm going to say their property is less than a half mile from here. So definitely we got deer that are crossing from theirs to mine. And, <clears throat> you know, they were, they were just, beco- just becoming good hunters. They were teenagers. And, man, they were whacking the does. And, therefore, <laughs> you know, and we were communicating on the you know, Facebook Messenger and stuff. And I thought, man, I don't need to kill any does. You know, those two boys over there killed 12. <laughs> you know? And, you know, they got some family property, but uh, they they have since gotten into trophy hunting. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they're not killing any does now, you know, which is, I, I'll, I'll just throw this in. It's not part of our agenda, but uh, as a land manager that's walked all over in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, I am extremely concerned that nobody's killing does anymore. Yeah. I will tell you, nobody's killing them. Uh, 20 years ago, we were all killing them. <clears throat> it's not happening anymore. And I'm, and I'm seeing properties with so many deer per square mile, they're eating the bark off of trees. Yep. And and we have... And you're a, probably seeing the same thing. It, it, up in northern Indiana, in, in, in my areas, yes. Um, and the crazy thing is, I, I fear that what's happening is you have people who are designing properties, doing all the habitat work, doing all this stuff. And the does are just, you know, they flock to those places. Well, then those that aren't, that are, you know, the guys that they love hunting, but they don't take it. Habitat's not part of their game. Right. That's not something yeah. they get into. They're not seeing the deer. They're not seeing the does. Well, that's because oh, yeah. they're, they're on all yeah. the other properties that are, they're not getting killed. Yep. They can freely the move and they know it. And, and it's, it's creating this very, two sides of the coin disagreement over the issues. We're seeing it really hard in Indiana right now. We have a lot of people believing we're killing vastly too many does. Oh, and then there's, there's, there's a bunch of us that are like, no, like, you know, li- literally half mile down the road, you got a guy that's where I haven't seen it. You know, I've, I've, I've been really careful about, oh, I, hunt. I haven't seen six deer all year. Yep. And that, and the other half mile, that guy every night he's seeing somewhere between 25 and 40. Yep. I share a property. I share a property with a guy. He doesn't hunt there anymore, but he hunted there for two or three years. We would lose the place in firearm season. He would get permission. He was family friend oh, yeah. of the owner. Yep. He could have swore there was no deer. Yeah. 
And, you know, yeah. I, I and, feel and again, that goes to, uh, you know, it's not his fault, but he's not into habitat. No. So it's poor habitat compared to the other places. Yep. Well, if you're a doe, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the Hilton, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> Let's go where nobody's slinging lead at us. Are you yeah. kidding me? And, and, and besides, there's just great food everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is great living. Oh, my gosh, no, yeah. You can't blame them. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, but to get into one thing, and I know you love talking about this next topic, and that's going to be the scent discussion. Um, oh, man. Yeah. I have a bunch of – I even have really close friends that are really good hunters that they just don't pay attention to it. And they kill some awesome deer, but I tell you what, they have to go the extra mile, walk the extra mile, and oftentimes set through hunts where they don't see anything, sure. But unless you have that, you know, kind of like behind your, that, that clover chicory plot, that's a spot that you necessarily don't have to follow right. such a yep. stringent scent regimen. Although I have a feeling Jake Ellinger is still following somewhat of one, even when he goes there. Oh, you know, yeah, I'm not like I'm stinking up, you know, like a, like a typical hunter and especially my equipment, you know, but, uh, but let's, let's delve into the yeah. world of scent in Jake and, and listeners, you want to take notes right now, get a paper out. Uh, I know I implement, I think almost everything, but even I'm going to have a pen and paper handy because I have a feeling there's probably some stuff that I'm forgetting, but Jake, take the floor and talk to us about your scent regiment. I'm going to say, I encourage everybody that's listening to Understand that the biology, the more you can learn about the biology of deer and how their life is all about their nose. So you got to understand that right off the bat. And there are so many things that deer pay attention to that that a lot of hunters uh, just just they take it for granted that it's not a big deal. And it's a very big deal. But, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, you know, I take a shower. Well, I take a shower, but it's a little bit different than what everybody else does. And I scrub down really, really hard with scent-free soap. And I, I, I end my shower with cool water after all the soap is rinsed off me. And I use a stainless steel bar and I rub it all over my body and all over my armpits and all my, quote, man pits. And I don't know if you know about stainless steel bars, but all the famous chefs throughout the world that are cooking fish at one moment with their bare hands, preparing fish, go to the sink, grab a stainless steel bar, run cold water on it, kind of rinse their hands for about 10 minutes with that stainless steel bar. That stainless steel bar ionizes. It basically is, an, is, a, is a layer of ozone on your skin is what it is. And if you can reduce bacteria from forming, so then that chef can go right into steaks or onions or hamburg barehanded and not transfer that fish smell onto it. Okay, so that's that's where I'm going. So I learned about this probably 10 or 15 years ago. There was a local guy here in Jackson that makes these stainless steel bars. I give them to every one of my clients this year. I ordered a whole bunch from him. So every time I meet a new client uh, after the handshake and I say, hey, I got a gift for you. And I hand them that stainless steel bar, tell them a little bit about it. So, I, so I, I shower, use that. When I go to dry off with a towel, this towel has not been in my wife's washer and dryer with all the fancy smells that everything else is in that washer and dryer. This, this towel, and I know I'm a little bit unique. I, I have my own separate hunting washer and dryer in my walkout basement. So that's the only place that towel gets laundered in. And that towel gets, uh, you know, gets changed out every probably three times I dry off with it. Okay. And, you know, then, you know, I brush my teeth and do all the things that everybody does. I gargle with uh, 
peroxide again, you know, because your breath is something to really pay attention to. So I gargle with peroxide to kill bacteria in my mouth. And then I have a, a walkout basement with a complete scent control room in it. And in that room, I have ozone machine running that exposes ozone to underwear, long underwear, socks, everything I'm going to wear out hunting is being exposed to ozone. And so as I dress, um, I'm, I'm putting on, number one, I'm putting on clothes that have been washed with ozone, so to speak, the odor of ozone and, and the, you know, the molecules, but you know how it works, how ozone, yep. you know, attaches to odor and keeps it from, from being spread all over the place and, and destroys odor. And I use zeolite as a powder to uh, rub all over my body as I'm dressing. So cool, you know, early season, I'm only, you know, putting on one layer, uh, you know, it's uh, the 20th of December and it's 10 above zero. I'm putting on multiple layers. So every layer I'm using a lot of this zeolite, which is crushed volcanic rock. In my opinion, it's just as effective as uh, the activated carbon. But so much cleaner. It is so much cleaner. And, you know, I'm a guy that deals with the public, and, and uh, I know you'll get a kick, but I'm going to say this. You know, walking around with black face, face was not real popular uh, the first couple of times I used that, okay? so Not to so, mention that stuff, anybody listening, activated carbon, your shower, unless you scrub, will slowly turn black. Oh, yeah, and anything. And I've got, I have personal friends of mine that had it on their socks and didn't realize it and walked into the living oh. room. And uh, the yep. wife was not really, really happy. And ultimately, new carpet went into that house. Yep. Brand because new house here last year. Did it twice. I didn't think I was going to live. There will be black footprints in that carpeting for a really long time. Yep. So this is a cream-colored, kind of an eggshell-colored powder. Comes out real easy. Washes out easy. You can get it off your skin, but it works real good. So I, you know, I, I'm putting that powder all over my body in my underwear as I dress out. So I'm using a lot of that. And my boots are vigorously washed, uh, put on a boot dryer. When they're upside down on the boot dryer, dripping from washing them with baking soda and a, and a scrub brush, I sprinkle zeolite all over the, the bottoms, the soles of those boots, those boots are sitting in that boot dryer. They sit overnight. The zeolite dries attached to the soles. At that time, I take the boots out of the dryer with a pair of jersey gloves on so I don't contaminate the little bit of human oil that's on my fingers onto those boots. I know it sounds <laughs> detailed, but it's what I do. And uh, tip them over. And then I just have my, you know, your, your typical scent killer spray. And, I, and the reason I'm using it, it's wet. I spray it all over the top of the boots and around all the way to the top. You know, the whole boot is wet except the sole. And I put it in a tote that has about two inches of zeolite in there. And I close the lid and I shake that thing very vigorously for about 15 seconds, set it and let it go. I got three different totes that I rotate, three different pairs of boots. Three days later, you open that tote and those boots are completely white inside and out with zeolite. And that's the last thing I put on as I'm heading out the door to go hunting right after I put my activated carbon scent absorbing outer garments on. And so I, I pay an awful lot of attention to the bottoms of those boots. And when I'm walking across the grass on, through my backyard, heading to my hunting location, I'm leaving white tracks from the zeolite. Okay, it's really cool. <laughs> you, I don't know if you've used it, but you've probably seen the same thing if you've been to that level. I'm still digging through all my leftover... Uh 
carbon powder. I have a gallon. I have a two gallon jug of the zeolite, but I'm still waiting to use up all my activated. Carbon. Oh yeah, and and the carbon is really good. And and on your boots, it's not a big deal because you know you really don't care. And I I use it on the inside of my boots just as much as on the outside because it absorbs any sweating. And and I will tell you when I put my the one thing I do different. And and I know John Eberhart. Uh, you know, I've followed him for years. See what he does. Yeah. And he likes to put his pants outside of his boots. And I believe that by touching pants outside of your boots and any human odor that is working up the ankles to the tops of those boots is going to exhaust out and go onto the ground on both sides of your feet. I tuck my my pants into the boots and I blouse them, if you know what I mean, by pull them up and create create a flap that goes over the top of them. And, and, and at least I've convinced myself that it's, and of course it's tighter and they're not flopping around. And so I'm not making contact, touching vegetation, walking into my stand, you know, even though my trails are well manicured and cut and, and all that, but I'm doing everything I can to try and, and reduce uh, any human odor that's on the bottoms of the boots, on the clothing that I'm wearing. I don't touch anything. You know, I got a backpack and my bow and my gear, but I'm like a surgeon walking in. I mean, I'm not touching anything. You know, some guys are kind of laxy daisy and, you know, they see they see a tree limb and they kind of reach out with their hands and they touch that tree limb to go around it. I'm going around it like a surgeon with my arms up. OK, I don't want to touch nothing. <laughs> and that's kind of how I go in and out. And, I, and I'm real stealthy going in. I mean, when, when I'm up here by the yard, I'm, I'm walking like I normally do. But when I get into my covers and where my accesses are. Now I'm taking one or two steps and I stop and I'm taking, you know, maybe three steps and I stop and I'm, you know, I go ahead and I give myself the, the additional 15 or 20 minutes. It takes me to go those 200 yards and normally you could cover in, you know, three and a half or four minutes. Okay. Sure. But I'm going in slow, keeps me from sweating. And once I get to my stand, you know, I, I say, I get all the way up and I've got my backpack with me and I've got it hanging inside of my backpack. I've got a little, uh, a nice little, it's a, it's a Velcro uh, and zipper pocket. And in there I have a, a carbon activated mask. Okay. okay. Made yep. by the company yep. called I can breathe. And I've been using those for years and that's the last thing I put on for my breath. And so when I'm sitting in a tree stand and I am in my absolutely awesome hunting funnel that I've waited all year to hunt is my first time in and it's November 8th. And I'm planning on being there all day. I got my mask on. Yep. Yep. So uh, one thing I think that uh, I will talk about is that walking slow and being careful, white-tailed deer are able to distinguish disturbance in the leaves. They may not be able to smell you, but they can tell the leaves were rustled up. And it's, it's been documented. It's been videoed. And so if you've got pressured deer, be really careful about how you walk don't scuff up those leaves because you know there's nothing like a six-year-old doe that you see 40 yards away and about time she's 20 yards away you hear the grunt and see that big set of antlers and 60 yards away is the is your target buck and now she's staring at the ground and all of a sudden getting nervous because she's seen where you walked in so and if you don't i i use this trick i shot a doe at a property one time if you don't think they pay attention to disturbances on the ground people listening test it 
I actually, oh, yeah. I have a stand I hunt in edge of an alfalfa field, and I actually took the heel of my boot where I knew they might be in cross, and I wanted them to get to their attention. Scuffed that boot line, just a boot scuff. Now, fresh earth also, they'll smell that, so oh, might sure. have been that. But I, I shot a doe just two seconds after her nose came up out of that because she saw it, and she walked to it and checked it out. And then all of a sudden, she was like a whole different body posture, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh. She was like, you know, another two seconds and she was gone. Probably. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. But it was yep. a fail safe. If they yep. came in from behind me, a direction that I did not want them to come, I wanted to try to have a split second chance. And it worked oh, I, at that time. You know, I, I, yeah, no, it, it's, a, it, it's important. So, you know, taking all these precautions and, and being very disciplined about your scent control and doing it every time you hunt, exactly the way I, I talk about it. And, uh, you know, it goes into that accumulation thing. You know, let's say you have hunted, uh, you've hunted your your best stand and you hunted all day and darn it, the target buck that you wanted, he just didn't come through. You passed some great up and comers, but it just didn't happen. Well, maybe 10 days later, there's another cold front and the conditions are going to be great. And it's still, it's still prime time. So now you can go back into there 10 days later and you haven't got it all screwed up with your human scent. And this time it all works. You know, you're in there, beautiful morning and you know, here you know the, the deer are coming, and you hear that deep grunt, and here he comes. You know the leaves are making all this racket, and uh, you're able to make the shot, and it's and it's worth it because you know I love killing those deer the very first time in, and uh, I've done that a lot, and I will agree that's one of the best times ever. But I've also got a couple of these really good funnel stands that I hunt that maybe end up killing him the second time in, and if you don't preserve it. You're not going to kill him the second time. Yep. So, uh, so I'm I'm really big into scent control. Learned it a long time ago, and you know, you there's all kinds of different people with with uh, you know, different philosophies about scent control. But for me, it works. I have found that if I don't do what I do, this property will go to you know what in a short amount of time, and then it'll be just a typical property. You know, if you took this property that I've got so well laid out with all the different, you know, bedding areas and food sources and screening and let two other hunters hunt it for two years the way they normally hunt Michigan property, this would be a regular Michigan property. And they would say, well, all we saw was a six point and a four point and a few does. I'd say, yep, that's what you did. <laughs> you turned it into a normal property. You know, so as great as habitat is, if, if there's human pressure and human scent, it's uh, it's not going to stay that way very long. Yep. Deer will stay in a park that is free of human intrusion before they'll stay yep. at, a, at, a, at Jake Ellinger's own place if it's yep. getting disturbed. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, you know, the, I would say if there's anything I have learned in the last uh, 20, 25 years on this property is scent control is really important and do not overpressure these deer and it's you know it's very hard to do you know, <laughs> you know we had uh, the second buck i killed this year it was the third day of season of of our firearm season and you know guys hey have you been out and i said no man the, the conditions are awful yeah but it's the first day <laughs> like yeah <laughs> you know well have you been out well, it's the second day. I said, well, it's still not right. I said, I might go tomorrow. I said, it's looking like I'm going to see what it's like in the morning. But if these conditions hold true, I might go tomorrow. But I'm not going to mess it up. I know where these deer are living, you know. <clears throat> and that, that goes back to kind of how you were hinting at sometimes our biggest enemy is ourselves. Yeah. You got to have self-control. 
if you go in when, when it's a gusty, windy day and it's not the right time of the year, sure, that deer's there. He's going to move around. He's, he's still looking for girls, but what he's going to do is get a whiff of you. He's going he's gonna to get evidence that you're here, and then, uh, it, you know, it breaks down pretty quick after that. Yep. You're not going to have an opportunity for him. Yep. So. And the smaller our properties are, I, I, the room for air becomes smaller and smaller. I was I was just on a small one a few weeks ago. I think it was like 20, 22 or twenty seven acres. Well, nice property, river bottom that went through it. Guy's got a house on it in a yard. Okay, and I said, you know, the moment you step out of this yard, these deer know you're here. As <laughs> 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 you, you just have to you just have to convince yourself that the moment you you know you living here and your wife and your kids and your dog, okay, they're all used to this, but. As soon as you get a hundred yards away, it's a whole different world. This is not where they're used to you being. Yep. And, and yeah, so we can either uh, make it a really great deer utopia to have wonderful hunts and, and see target bucks, or we can turn it into a spot where you have a lot of sits and not a whole lot of activity. So, so it's up to us at the end of the day. Yeah. And that can, and you can use that, you know, a gentleman there's, I'm sure there's people listening right now, or that'd be like me if I had a house on my 22 acres there's an area around that house that like your little clover chicory plot, you can use it to your advantage in a way. Yeah. You just yep. got to learn to maximize every square foot of that property yeah. when you don't yeah. have a lot to work with. Yeah. It, it, you know, and uh, I, even on 22 acres, there's going to be some regions that uh, you can make thick and holding cover through all kinds of different methods. And those are the areas you want to deliberately stay the heck away from. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. that, and maybe that's 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 one other question that I, I didn't plan on going but you know i know you are like me you, you, overhead canopy is the enemy <laughs> you know oh, yeah. getting sunlight yep. down what, yep. for those listening so say say you've got a 10 acre chunk of property jake that it lays out perfect this is going to be a bedding area this is going to be where we are going to want to have be one of our main holding areas for daytime bedding um but it is mature timber. What is your plan of attack to a landowner, to anybody listening? I'm going to walk in there and kind of assess that timber, you know, uh, which ones are, are oaks, maples, you know, which ones are mass trees, which ones aren't. Um, some of them are going to be, you know, quite mature and have big crowns on them. And a lot of crowns are going to be touching each other. Um, I'm going to look at a few of them. Yeah, around the outside edges and maybe one or two of them in the center that I'm going to focus on that are going to be tree stand trees. And when you have a tree stand tree, that doesn't mean you just leave one. You might leave a group of three or four because you don't want to be just just one lone tree out there in yep. the middle. But but my goal is to cut all those trees down, everything standing. I love it. And, you know, and, and well, I would tell you, you know, um, I've got five and a half acres right here behind the house. And, uh, you know, now there's trees standing because they've grown out of the ground, okay, through succession. But uh, when myself and my buddy Jim and I got done working on it eight, nine years ago, and then I kind of let it, you know, it took four or five years for the succession to come in before I could create all the nooks and crannies and, you know, the corridors and, and the winding trail systems that connect. I mean, it was, uh, it was probably an 85 to 90% cut. I mean, you know, there was weekend after weekend after weekend in there dropping timber. 
was the best thing I ever did. I know I was going to say it's going to be the best thing you ever do, but I know there's a lot of guys listening that is very hard to convince them to do that it's mentally. Very hard to convince people to do that. You know, so that goes back to the goals. You know, there are some people that really their goals are to grow some timber and and make some money off of it. Mm-hmm. And that's more important than growing big deer. All right. And that's fine. So you're not going to go in there and cut cut away that all that, but you're going to have to realize that you know, understand the expectations. You're only going to get so much early succession by taking a few trees out every few years. And if your goal is to grow big deer, then you've got to get sunlight to the ground so that you've got a whole bunch of succession about four feet and lower down. I mean, you know, in order for deer to browse and have cover, there's got to be a lot of growth, you know, and the deer aren't tall, you know, they're, they're four feet and down. Yep. So that's the goal. And you've been through it. You know what, what oh, it yeah. takes. And it takes a lot. From the tips uh, of our toes to our armpits, that's their zone. I'm telling you, that's their zone. And uh, I I had some fun. I went out uh, yesterday afternoon because it was nice and sunny here. Grabbed my dog, Pepper. Took a quick walk into some of my bedding areas. Had my video camera running. And my gosh, you know, the the beds. and (laughs) Just beds everywhere. And then I've got some... I've got a big section of conifers that I planted all these trees all by hand. You know, every tree now that's 40 feet tall that I can put a tree stand in was literally eight to 16 inch seedlings at one time. You know, and it's just really cool to, to see these areas. But, you, you know, talk about deer beds. OK, so here's this small property. And I mean, literally hundreds of deer beds. OK, so there's, you know, there's 50 deer utilizing, you know, depending on the wind direction, you know, one day they're over here, one day they're over there. And then some of these beds are just constantly used over and over again. But but pretty cool to walk in and just see, you know, all, all the tracks and the trails and, and, and where they're bedded. And, and yeah, you know, it's good, good thermal cover. There's good browse. They're eating everything that's coming up out of the ground just the way it's supposed to be. Because my goal is to create all this succession for them to feed on. And uh, yeah, it comes out, you know, real good. So, so for that 10 acres, if your goal is to have a really good bedding area, you're going to want to cut it at least 75% as a minimum. And, you know, have, have some openings and some travel corridors and, you know, some, some areas for, for family groups to bed. And then some isolated bedding areas 50 yards away from there with some, some compartmentalization and brush in between so lone bucks can bed and not have to make eye, make eye contact with those six-year-old does. And, you know, the, the whole uh, biology of these deer and how they interact and even though they all pay attention to each other, other than about four weeks out of the year, the females rule the roost. Oh, <laughs> yeah. At, at the end of the day, they're in charge, you know. And, so uh, there's a question that comes up, Jake, that maybe, uh, you know, you hear the term doe factory. I don't even know who started that. Um, but do you want to attract does or do you want to attract bucks? Well, Is there a know, difference? What's your opinion? You know, I, I could get. Uh, deep into it, but I'll, I'll just cover it. Um, I want to attract both. All right. I do. I want to have both. And um, here, you know, I, I keep track of a lot of stuff. You know, my engineering background means I am a note taker and I'm pretty meticulous about records and data. And uh, I have piles of those here, but I have piles of bucks too. And that's what I want. Now, I don't, if I have too high, of, of, of a, just a general do, uh, population, I'm starting to shoot the does because Michigan's just like northern Indiana. Yep. Antlered bucks die. <laughs> yeah, yep, they do. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the majority of the population is going to be females just because of the way our, our uh, hunting regulations are set, okay? 
that's just the way it works out yep. because everybody's after a big set of antlers, you know. So I, I never have that, you know, too many bucks, so to speak. But I, I have a good, I have a very well-balanced uh, buck herd here. And then finally, age structure. It's taken me years to get age structure. And it's still, you know, it's, it's still work because you got to pass some nice deer to have age structure. Okay. But, you know, um, hey, experience has taught me that you can pass some pretty nice deer that you really hope they don't show up somewhere else because anybody else is going to kill them. But if they do make it, man, they're going to be a neat one the next year. <laughs> And, and you've had some taste of that. Yeah. And, and it works. You know, it's just being able to get him to four and a half or five and a half or whatever age class you're looking for him to get to. Yep. And, you know, I always tell people you get to the point where, yeah, it gets easier. It's never it's never really easy to watch a really gorgeous three and a half year old buck walk away. You know, maybe I, I remember passing one that probably would have been close to my personal best. But you know what? If you don't, there's really no chance then. No, and, and you've no. done everything. You put yourself in a position of success. You could have killed that deer. Everything is done except for you just don't get to walk up and take a picture with well, him. One of the things I do here, and, and again, I'll just kind of add this as, as a land manager and, and with my goals of, of wanting to have mature bucks to, to be able to have an opportunity at, is I might have bucks on my hit list from October 1st through, through our gun season, which is... Uh, December 1st. Okay. Okay. So, you know, bow season starts October and then our gun season is, is November 15 to the last day of, of November. And then from that point on, if that buck makes it, he, he's getting a pass. Yep. I'm letting him go. He's just like, you know what? He's here. I got late, you know, I got late season food. I got great cover. The, the big event is over. Okay. Yep. The, the, the rut has come and gone. They're starting to bachelor up. They're coming in and feeding in food plots together. Nobody's chasing one another anymore. It's like, all right, if I can just get you through next year and, and several of the nice bucks I've killed the last 10 years, I let go in that December time frame and then had a chance to kill them the following year. So, so they were good homeboys and they stayed home. <laughs> Those homeboys are always the nice. I'm looking at one right now. It's over my right shoulder. Yep. They... Uh, they just seem to set up shop, and I'm telling you guys that are listening, if you get a chance, check out Jake's property because he really has set up a whitetail mecca. And, I mean, it's it's no surprise that you give them everything they want. You give them security. You give them cover. You give them food. They, It's like a magnet. It, it is. And, uh, you know, for several years I've killed some, some, some really good target bucks uh, on this property. And they're deer that I know very well, and I've got all kinds of cool history with them. And, and that's why I have fun when I put the videos together, because I can say, oh, yeah, you know, I, here's, here's a picture of this buck two years ago. And here's a shed that I found. And then here he was all last summer. And here's here's all the game camera pictures. And it's so neat when they're just living here all the time. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an instincts-driven guy. I go by a lot of my own personal instincts when it comes to how to hunt them and when to hunt them. And I can't tell anybody how to learn how to do that, but I do know that what I do works. <laughs> you know, I, I just, it's like, I just know he's going to be here tonight. Okay. Or, or morning or what, whatever time I hunt. And a lot of times when I go in there, those deer are there mm-hmm. and that's, that's pretty cool. So, yeah. And, and those listening, this is Jake, this is not, this is Michigan. This is not Iowa. Yeah. This is not Kansas. Yeah. This is Michigan where where every neighbor that touches my property uh, will shoot the first legal antlered buck that is around. Yep. And it has been that way since all the time I've lived here. And some some years worse, some years better. But uh, I, I could say probably the majority of hunters today 
Uh, newer hunters in the area are looking for better deer. So there's probably more people passing uh, two-year-olds today than there was 20 years ago. Nice. And, and that's a good, it's a good thing. It doesn't mean that everybody is, but there are more people yep. passing two-year-olds now. And, and that's a great start because if we can get them to three, that, that's, a, that's a good way to go. Hey, there's three-year-olds that are going to be sporting a pretty good rack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, three-year-olds can grow an incredible amount. They can put a huge amount of bone on one year. Oh, yes. And I I, I, I know that personally. <laughs> yeah, I've shot a couple. I'll, I'm, oh, hey, I'm not too know, proud to admit it. No, I, I can say the same thing. You know, you get you get one that just has, uh, uh, you know, a lot of growth to him. And even though you've gotten uh, game camera pictures, you're always waiting for that time when he's right up in front of you and you can really watch him, you know. And I had yep. that happen this year, you know. It was like, man, when that deer got in front of me and I had my binoculars on him and he was not very far away, I said, that has got the most amount of mass I've seen on a deer and I don't know how long. <laughs> I said, I think I'm going to kill that deer. <laughs> yeah, that was a gorgeous deer. I mean, it was five and three quarters mass measurements between the G2s and the G3s. Wow. Oh, and he was three years old. That was a booner at five. And I was Don Higgins was saying, he's saying, what are you doing? You know, he didn't, he uh, didn't have tips of his antlers. They just ended. They were just blunt. They just stopped. Oh man. I'm telling you. Carried the mass all the way through. Yeah. Carried mass all the way through and, uh, you know, long, you know, fairly long main beams for a a three-year-old and tips almost touch probably about an inch and three quarters between the, the tips, you know, so just super cool deer. That's awesome. But, uh, yeah. Well, I don't want to take up a ton more of your time but i kind of expressed there's just i'm gonna rapid fire some questions at you we're just gonna call it the small acre the small acres moment of truth you know there's times where we're presented with a situation actually that discussion of of a really good three-year-old leads in perfectly to the first quick scenario okay so a blessing of a scenario never probably gonna see this happen but two bucks walk out a six-year-old that scores terribly think 100 inches and a three-year-old that would break jake's personal best which one do you shoot uh boy <laughs> man nothing like like giving me a softball easy one yeah we're gonna start hard um if it's if it's a, a if it's a three-year-old that breaks my personal best that is gonna be a 160 class animal okay yep uh which is possible I, oh I, yeah rare oh, but yeah. possible yep um but i think if i had a six-year-old 100 inch deer and i had any kind of history with him i would take him I agree. Um, It'd be very tough. I really like killing some old deer. I've killed, I think if I look here on the wall and, and I know you can't see, but I am surrounded by, I have 78 white tall, uh, white tail bucks on the wall right here where I'm sitting. So I've killed a couple. (laughs) And uh, I think there's 10 or 12 here uh, between four and a half and six and a half. That I've killed in in the last 12, 15 years. And I killed, you know, I killed a cool buck named Righty. I did a video on him. Yes, I remember it. You know, I'll tell you what, I sent his teeth in. And I also had two biologists that I know very well look at his teeth. Okay. And and, and even the Cementennium Aging Company said, absolutely, without a doubt, five and a half, but maybe six and a half. Really? Yeah. And sometimes they're not... they're not able to tell because the, the wear on those incisors were so far down. Yeah. Okay. He had really warmed down. 
they, they weren't sure. Oh, my, I'm telling you, I got his lower jaw right here. I mean, they are just cupped, okay? <laughs> his, his molars are cupped, and he was the coolest deer. And this was a deer that, uh, maybe this will segue good. You often run into hunters in Michigan and other states and say, well, I had to take this deer out of the herd. You know, he, his antlers weren't anything good. And he had, he had just a dinky little left side and a, and a typical right side. And for three years, that deer never had anything decent on its right side. And when he was four years old, his, his, or I mean, his right side always looked good. His left side was bad. So when he was, when he was four, his left side went back to a normal with four points on it. And then when he was five and a half, the year I killed him, he could be six and a half. I don't know. Um, it even grew up a little bit more. And he's, he's right at, oh, He's right in that 128, 130 class. Yeah. But man, what a deer. I, I've never, in all my years of hunting deer, I never had a deer that was so hard to see in daylight and just fought with everybody. And he was, he was a typical bully buck. When he moved into my bedding covers, all the good deer were gone. And, and it was like, I, I said, man, I'm going to kill this deer before he chases all the good ones out of here. And they're the ones that chase everything out or break oh, up what's there. Oh, yeah. And he was constantly fighting. He broke all kinds of tines off. And I, I you know, and, and I had five years of, of trail camera photos and personal observations of this buck all broke up in pieces. Okay. And he was just a fighting machine. But he, he field dressed like 235. So he was just a giant. Oh, and I've yeah. got some incredible pictures of this deer. And he just looks fat, okay. Every, you know, just just fat, and just was a heck of a deer. So, um, yeah, I I would shoot that, I'd shoot that six year old that only scored one hundred and five. Nice, nice. <laughs> because that means that that three year old is there, and he's over one hundred and sixty. Gosh, if he can make it, he's. Oh wait, I forgot. Next. You get two buck tags. See, we got, we got two <laughs> buck tags here. You're just gonna be looking for that follow up shot. Yeah, we're looking for that follow up shot. <laughs> Oh, All right. Man. Next next question. Uh, okay. You are only allowed two specific seed types to use on your plots for the rest of your life. What are they? Two specific. Now, when clover, you say clo- types, clover can be an all-encompassing. And that can like, be a blend, right? A mix? Yeah, like a clover. Just all clover yeah. seeds, if that's yeah. where you're heading. So, I, I'm a clover chicory guy. Year, okay. Years and years of experimentation. And I am, I, I will never, ever not have clover chicory. I've never seen anything attract bucks. Is the, the moment they're growing new antlers, my clover chicories are covered up with bachelor groups with cans on their head. Okay. And I mean, literally. <laughs> and it's just awesome when you got the cameras on video. And, and in the fall, it's the same thing. Come about September 20th. I look right out my window and see my shooters in my clover chicory 150 yards from the house. On yep. it, you know, there's switchgrass between us. So, so does that count as one as one seed type, a clover chicory mix? Well, I'm gonna say chicory's separate, so you'd have to go okay. just clover. You okay, could do yep. a really I, good clover I'll blend. I'll tell you what, if if, I, if that's all I had to choose from, that's what I would go with. You really, know, just easy. clover and chicory. Clover and chicory. It is easy to maintain. It attracts deer right up until probably um it's going to get me into and through uh our firearm season sure i mean there's other things i i mean i'm definitely a, you know i'm a brassica mm-hmm. guy i love brassicas for their for their cold weather attraction and and all the top growth on the leaves okay you know i love that and then yep. you know of course i'm also a 
a big a soybean guy. Yep. So so that's really tough. But yeah, I would probably take that just because at the end of the day, as great as food is for attraction, I really care about the nutrition that the whitetails are getting. Mm-hmm. And I am giving those whitetails nutrition from the 20th of March all the way to about December 10th. Yep. And you know what? They're in really, and then I've got early successional growth in all my bedding areas to take care of all their other needs. So, yep, that would be what one I would take. Good deal. All right, third one, third question: Mid-October cold front plunging into the 30s, or a mid-November but in the 70s? Which would you rather hunt? Mid-October plunging into the 30s. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I've killed a few good bucks on that. And, and I will tell you, you know, high pressure. So of course that happens. Yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a post cold front guy. I'm not I I like to hunt on the back side of the cold front versus the front side of the cold front because I'm looking for mature deer. Mm-hmm. And if and if you watch enough mature deer, they will wait until after that cold front has passed before they're up and moving. Yep. And, they put they you, I've always sensed they put their feeding troughs on after it's moved through. After it's moved through, and yep. then your pressure's coming up. Yep. yep. And you know I, I've killed. Uh, you know, really nice bucks. And of course that, that's super nice when I killed this year, uh, first hunt of the season, October 2nd, 30 degree temperature drop, cold front and third buck out into the field. <laughs> Tor- tormented me for an hour and 20 minutes. I was gonna say, you got a lot of footage of him. I got a lot of footage of him. Yeah. But you know, ultimately he gave me the 22 yard shot and he didn't go 40. So uh, yeah yeah and that was big heavy deer that was 275 live weight man you got some big deer up there oh i'm telling you he's got, he's got a head at him that wouldn't quit just a you know i've been following he's five and a half and i've been following that deer for years and this year he just made uh the elinger ponderosa home i probably <laughs> i had my eyes on him looking out my kitchen or up upstairs window most of the entire summer wow I would watch him every night. And this in is my... in an area where you have people that would say there's no deer older than three and a half. Oh, yeah. That's what's crazy. And, and you know, he was 21 inches inside. <laughs> so I always knew about, I called him wide boy in the beginning, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was a good one. So, yeah, I'll definitely take, I have found that those, uh, those October cold fronts in the first uh, 15, 18 days of October, with a good food source and great screening to get you into that and out of that food source without blowing it can really pay off. And it's, a, it's always in a transition area where, where they meet up. But you've seen my, you've seen my videos. Yep. I got the, the cedar tree that all the bucks scrape under. And, uh, and, and today, my cell cam, I've, have, I've got a cell cam on that. I never have a cell cam during hunting season. It's just, it's an ethical thing. I... If I've got a spot I hunt, I don't have a cell cam on it. I respect I, I'm that. Just, I'm just that guy. But after hunting season, I think it was around uh, the middle of January, I put up, I put a cell cam on there just to watch the deer that were feeding. And now the turkeys are out there. Because, you know, it's getting, and oh, there's long beards. The other day there was 15, 16, you know, long beards dragging in the snow out there. So. So now they're tormenting me. I'm not much of a turkey hunter. I don't know if you are. I'm not either. I despise those things. They eat too many seeds. Boy, you and I, you know, that's what I tell people. I said, you know, they're great, but I have a love-hate relationship with them. And when you put seed in the ground and go through all the time, 
and yep. you know we and we're counting on mother nature and and mother nature works i don't want them going in there two days later and ripping all my seed out of the ground yep if my property wasn't so small i'd let every hunter in my area the whole county could go out there kill as many turkeys as you want uh, yeah. i'm just yeah. not gonna do it yeah yeah so <laughs> but next question okay. apple, apple tree or pear tree mm, boy That's, uh, you know, I'm going to go with apple. Mm-hmm. I am. I'm going to go with apple. Hairs are great, but when it comes to uh, mass crop, the, the amount, uh, I, I mean, I grew up in a, in a country uh, yard that had these three great big pear trees. So as kids, we had to rake pears and I hated doing that, you know, <laughs> so those, tr- those, but those were kind of trees you would, you never see. I mean, these were trees that were clearly 50 60 feet tall who's got yeah. those for a pear tree right but you know I, i've got you know uh 15 18 foot uh apple trees that just load up i mean literally drop you know a bushel of apples That's crazy. so yeah and and not that i have a lot of apple drop during the hunting season but it sure is a great place to have a camera to get data on all my velvet bucks oh i bet <laughs> i bet there's nothing like a apple tree that every time the wind blows or it rains it drops apples you know regardless of their size yep and I, I can get some really good information about the local bucks with those apples there so well let's let's stay in the tree vein i got two more questions the next one is tree related white oak or chestnut white oak okay now do you have any chestnuts you know i have some growing here do you um yep uh you know when they're they're young and they've been in the ground three, four years. So, you know, they, you get a half a dozen burrs on them, yeah. you know, and the, I think the squirrels get to them before the deer ever do. Uh, but I have friends that have uh, actually on the West side of Michigan, there is some original chestnuts still alive. Okay. Oh, okay. And I've, I've actually had guys walk me up to these trees and there's just chestnuts everywhere. And um, I've seen the deer, uh, get to them now you know they're very spiny you know what those burrs are like they're mm-hmm. very spiny and i think that bothers the deer okay i mean they're like needles when you touch them sure and the white oaks i mean i've i've got uh i've got the burr oaks here on my farm and regular white oaks a burr oak on the edge of the water is like nothing you've seen i was gonna say for those listening there's white oak and then there's burr oak are a white oak but yeah it's, it's you a find hybrid. a burr oak oh, that's man. that yeah I'll take that I mean, over. Number one, they're the white. size of quarters. Okay? Yes. They're huge. And I have been in trees an hour after dark, and I still can't get out because all I hear is deer crunching acorns underneath me. You know, it, it is, you know, when you've got a good a good drop with with a white oak, you've got the white tails. I think that is their number one food uh, as soon as they hit the ground. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think this next question, the final question in, in, in the series of questions, I think you already answered and uh but you can never hunt november again like the the words that no hunter ever wants to hear you can either hunt the first three weeks of october or the first three three weeks of december which are you choosing Mm. well you know which one i'm going to take i'm going to take the first three weeks of october yep uh just and especially you know uh the way i have this property set up um i i have a lot of food and a lot of cover a lot of great, just really great diverse bedding areas that, you know, some are frequented by bucks and some are frequented by does. And it just has to do with elevation and, and how the wind and scenting conditions uh, roll through there. But, uh, man, I'm telling you, you know, uh, 
there is something magic about those those first three weeks of October and having good food sources and having good bedding areas and just the concentration of the the kind of lazy buck. You know, he's not chasing those yet. You know, he actually gives me a shot. Yeah. As, as great as, as November is, you know, when it's hot and, and it's kind of pandemonium in the woods and the bucks are going and the does are going. I can't tell. I've got some video uh, that I took several years ago, and I'm literally yelling at the top of my voice trying to get these bucks to stop running. I can't get them to stop running. You know, you got one hot doe, and I got eight different bucks, and two of them are good ones. Okay. Yep. Two of them go way into the 40s. You think I can get them to stop? I could never get them to stop, you know, or not get them to stop where I wanted them to, or say that, you know. But, uh, but I'd hate, you know, on the other hand, I love hunting November just because it's sweet November. You know, the yep. rut is pretty cool. I mean, anything can happen. It's awesome. But, uh, um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take that October hunt, though. Good <laughs> so, deal. Good deal. Yeah. I, I right. don't I don't have anything else left, but I did have, I, I, I will, I have a friend who knew I was talking to you tonight, and he's always been curious. He's, he's never, he's starting, he just discovered you. I don't know how. I'm not going to rat him out, but uh, you're 67 okay. acres. He was curious. What of that is because you have a decent amount of water, correct? I do. How much do. would you? What's the uh, rough acreage of the water? Twenty-two acres. So twenty-two acres. So you're down to forty-five acres of I've non-water. I've got forty-five acres of high ground. And then some of that's your house. That's my house yard. and yard. My food plots, my warm season grasses, and then the high ground that has you know hardwoods on them. That some, you know, some of these hardwoods have not been cut. You'll see places where, you, see, you know, people think the whole, the whole, all the hardwoods is hinge cut. Well, it's not, but mm-hmm. the ones that are are very strategic. Okay. Sure. And, uh, yeah. So really, you know, you're talking about 45 to, to 47 acres, depending on, you know, a wet year or a dry year. Yep. Um, and now I- there are some, there are some tiny little islands out on that, in that wetland. It's flooded timber. If you're familiar with wood duck and mallard heaven. It is, it is. It's wood duck and mallard heaven. Gotcha. And there are islands out there, and there are, and it's it's a kind of like a spider web swamp. It's got a big center to it, but it's got some fingers that go off. So there's places where deer cross these fingers, where where the where they narrow together. Mm-hmm. And one of them is about a hundred yards wide, but there are some islands out there, and some of the bucks will bet on those islands. Okay. And I mean, they're literally the size of a of an office desk. Yeah. And they might have, you know, a bur oak on it and some dogwood on it, but there's a spot, you know, a little clearing in the center of it. And they, you know, they walk through two feet of water and then flop down and sit out there all day. Well, good luck killing that deer. Right. So, uh, uh, so I found out that it's really a good thing because the bucks really use the edges of it and they bed, you know, they, they bed on those little islands close to the edge and it's great for steering deer. Okay. You know, when you've got water you can pinch deer right up next to that water and, and, and do some pinch points, you know, it can, can be fantastic. And I've had some, some incredible November hunts during the rut when I killed, you know, at that time, the best deer in my life, you know, close range, walking through a pinch that I had hinge cut trees and here's a 20 yard gap. And here he comes just like he's supposed to. <laughs> it's pre- pretty darn rewarding. I'll say that. Yeah, that that's one thing I always tell everybody that always asks me stuff. The first time you see a deer use or do something that you wanted them to and you did something to encourage it, I don't care who you are, you are hooked. You are hooked. You know, I was telling you the story about this buck I nicknamed Righty. And uh, there is a, uh, I, I won't rat him out, but there is a well-known whitetail guy who's on TV 
He's on multiple channels, super nice guy. And he had hired me uh, to come to a very large piece of property he owned in a big buck state. And I spent two nights with him. And through that conversation, I was telling him I had this buck that I thought was pretty sure five and a half. And what was his suggestion? And I said, you know, you've killed a lot of mature bucks and I just don't get a chance to get in on five and six year old bucks. What would you do? So he he told me that if I knew where I had seen that deer, where he was the most active prior to the rut, that go in there and set a stand and figure out those four or five days that he was at last year. And he says, I don't care what the weather is. He'll be there those same four or five days this year. So I went and did all this work. Actually, my wife helped me hang the stand and everything. And I hinged cut a couple of trees and I slipped into that stand on November 12th, because when I when I uh, had seen that deer it, the year before, it was between the 8th and the 12th, and he was the first buck in. <laughs> Just, it was like, is it really that easy? <laughs> and it wasn't. I mean, you know, the Lord was, was gracing me uh, for all my hard work and, and, you know, taking care of me that day, but it really was cool that he came right through the gap that I made and uh, just just like it was supposed to happen. He was trying to get downwind of a doe bedding area, what was really cool. So so maybe in a future uh, podcast, we can talk about strategy. You know, yes. after you've done habitat work, how, where to position yourself based on the, the, the stage of the rut to kill these deer yes. first early season and rut season, because it's a whole different strategy from one time of the year to the other, as you well know. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love that. I would love to sit down, because, yeah. you know, it's one thing to talk about the habitat and sculpt it, okay, but... You can give somebody the best property, but if they don't attack it appropriately, it's oh, not going to do yeah. them any good. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I run into a lot of people that I work with uh, that I do a good plan for. They, they embrace it. They do the habitat work. And they'll call me and tell me, you know, geez, you know, I, 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 I went into that bedding area and, and, you know, it was post-cold front and the wind was right. And I go, well, what time of the year was it? Well, it was the 4th of October. <laughs> I go, uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> I said, that's one of those things that you want to wait for some other time, you know, so we'll get into that later. But, yes. Yes. Uh, but yeah. Well, everybody listening, you heard it here. We're going to have Jake back and we're going to talk about this. Uh, I, we'll, I'd really look forward to it again, Ty. We will so. unpack some, some more stuff into it, but do you have anything closing Jake that you'd like to share with the listeners or well, anybody well, about Habitat? Here's, here's what I will say. You know, I, I've done this. And again, you know, it's not that I'm some old fogey, but I've been doing this a long time. I've done a lot of neat things on my property that work, okay? And here's the one piece of advice I can give everybody, because I see a lot of people that break this rule. Get out there and do something. Do not sit on that couch and think you shouldn't. I don't care what video you watch, what you read, what you go, you know, where you go on Facebook or any social media, Get out there and do something because doing something's a heck of a lot better than doing nothing. Yep. That's my, that's my tip of the night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And every mistake can be redone. It can. You can fix so, anything. Just get out yep. there and start doing. Yep. That is a great way to close out this episode. I want to thank Jake for swinging by. Um, one final time, Jake, could you run through where they can find you at? Sure. Uh, website, uh, habitatsolutions360.com, uh, Facebook. Habitat Solutions 360, and then YouTube page, Habitat Solutions 360, LLC. 
Awesome. And if you are a landowner out there and you're looking to have somebody delve into your property for a consult, a full-fledged consult, you will not regret giving this man a call, um, setting up on his schedule. And uh, I've seen some of his maps, folks. They are they are frame-worthy. Um, he's not joking when he puts those skills that he wants used on a daily basis to work. So thank you so much again, Jake, for swinging by. And I look forward to the next time where you can swing in and talk to us and chat whitetails. My pleasure, Ty. All right. God bless. Yep, you take care. Yep, bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Smolliger Hunting Podcast. As I said in the intro, and you may have heard during the episode, if you like what you're listening to, be sure to do all you can to spread and grow this podcast. Like, subscribe, review, and become a patron. This podcast, the website, the YouTube channel, it is all sponsorship-free guaranteed but that only can happen because of listeners like you go to smallacrehunting.com today click on the patreon link in the upper right hand corner and learn the very affordable for a coffee a month just one coffee a month three dollar tier is the introductory tier where you can show your support and fund everything that you hear there's other tiers there but for just three dollars a month you will guarantee that this show the website, the production videos, all stay sponsorship-free and not a single opinion is ever paid for or influenced by anyone but myself. God bless and thank you for tuning in.